Okay, I think we're ready for our inaugural, is that what it's called, podcast? I believe this would be called the inaugural episode of our podcast. <laughs> Debate number one. For what? What's the podcast name? <laughs> this podcast is called One Side is Always Right. <laughs> the game show where two men compete for your values. In which we go back and forth and try to prove that one side is never fully right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we shall see. I, I think this is a pretty interesting topic for the first one. It was actually, we, I mean, we, we both researched very little for this. Um, but it actually was pretty difficult to use keywords in Google to find things that I even wanted to research for. Like, did you find the yeah. same issue? Well, when I Googled centrism, I must have just found a lot of people just shitting all over the idea of centrism. <laughs> so I feel I feel a little bit like a, like a you know like a defense attorney that's been assigned like a guilty murderer, where it's right. just like it's obvious the dude fucking killed these people, and so now I have to like so I'm gonna try and do what any good lawyer I imagine would do slightly redefine what I'm arguing for until I actually feel like I can make a solid case for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, <laughs> and uh, we, neither of us have experience with law, so that may be completely false. Um, so the, the, the whole topic that we have to take the opposite sides on is, um, is centricism or extreme positions more conducive to affecting change socially and politically, I think. Is that a pretty good yeah. synopsis? Centrism. Yeah, not centricism, but oh, centrism. Oh, my bad. What does centricism mean? Is that a word? I don't think so. Centricism. No, it's centrism. You know, you know what I found out always a word today? It's not automation, but automation, which is a different kind of automation. <laughs> Automation. <laughs> it's like auto automation or something. I was like, "What? Good God!" And um, I'm taking I'm taking the a position that extremist views <laughs> are better for affecting change overall. And you are taking what view? I would say I'm taking the view that the, the position that moderate views are better for getting things done, but. Mm. I think we'll end up talking a lot about the definitions of this because yep. I mean, there's some really extreme viewpoints out there that, you know, <laughs> if you go to the, all the way to the extreme, um, mm -hmm. you're probably going to get to a, something that is almost impossible to enact because it's, it's so utopian. Yeah. And I would say by the same logic, if you were in the dead center of anything, you wouldn't really be able to do anything at all. Like by definition, you wouldn't really have any values. So, I mean, that was one of the things I was finding in my mm. research is that one of the problems with centrism is that you have to define whether you're talking about like the aggregate of all of my opinions on like various issues like abortion and this and gun control puts me in the center politically, say in America or in another political system. Um, or is it, this was actually, I got from a video, but I, I, I thought this was a good point. Or is it that like within those different issues, like, you know, I could be a, a huge guns rights advocate, but I'm also pro-choice, which is kind mm -hmm. of, that might make me something of a centrist. Or it could be like on all these issues, I'm actually kind of in the middle of them. Like I believe in moderate abortion rights. I believe in like, you know, responsible gun control, but with some freedom. So all that to say, 
we're going to have to talk probably a lot about how these labels come into practice um, and, and, you know, what, what is extreme or what is like the dead center of various things. Yeah. And I think that's where uh, those popularized like two-dimensional to multi-dimensional graphs come from where it's not just left or right, but authoritarian versus wh whatever the fuck the other one is freedom. And oh, then yeah, the, like the political compass, like the political compass is a very yeah. popular one. Yeah. Um, and I think it's safe to say like, you know, being labeled as a far right or far left or extremist versus, you know, a centrist really depends on your, um, your environment. Like if, if you were to drop either of us into North Korea, both of us would be extreme, but like we would not be cool and be trying to find the middle ground in that country. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, politically. yeah. I think one important disclaimer before we continue on this podcast for all or like our huge audience that's a, that's about to listen to this. I just want to yeah. get this. I, I just want to get this disclaimer out there uh, yeah. to everyone who's listening is that we're both like total idiots. Yeah. Like, like almost like you would normally go on a podcast like this to hear two <laughs> like pretty smart people take yeah. these different positions who have studied <laughs> political theory and political history um, and can back up everything they're saying. We have, Virtually none of that aside yeah. from, well, actually, I, I think, Thomas, you have read, <laughs> you have read, read a book. Some, you've read a couple of books and I, I've read parts of books, um, even, even to the point of having read a few entire books over the course wow. of my life. Um, but needless to say, uh, we have a lot of gaps in our knowledge. I guess I'll just leave it at that. There's going to be a lot of gaps in a lot of knowledge in a lot of places where we probably look pretty dumb. Yeah. It might be all of it. I, it and I was pretty, pretty, um, pretty explicitly aware of that as I was putting together these points that it would like, I, I mean, how much, how much did you research for this? Probably like an hour. Cause I know mine was just about an hour on the dot. Uh, yeah. I kind of scattered it throughout the day yesterday. It's probably total of like an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, yeah. probably in grand total of like the videos that I watched and articles I read, it was like an hour or maybe a little gonna, more. Yeah, we're going to be missing a lot of information that perhaps <laughs> yeah, a political scientist or like a history major probably will correct us on um, if they yeah. were ever to watch this. Well, a lot of them probably will watch this. Um, yeah. So I'm naturally. looking forward to getting the emails from sort of the various professors and PhD students. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Why would they watch this? <laughs> no, yeah. I think it'll be nice to hear from them um, yeah. and sort of just gently correct us where we've gone wrong. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I don't even know where to start this. I think, I yeah, think, let, yeah, go ahead. I think where I, I think where I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be arguing for this point because that's what we decided. But I, I, I genuinely feel after after some research that I think extreme positions, politically and socially, are foundationally necessary to change minds protect like sub moderate, like moderate subgroups and actually affect change. So I actually kind of ended up agreeing with the position I had to take, or at least to a, a point, because I only researched things for my point. I am tempted to just agree with you right off the bat and ruin this entire thing. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> because I, you know, I think there is a good point. I think there is a lot of good points to be made that you need extreme ideologies in order to affect change in any capacity. Mm. But I will try to take the other side of this and say that that's not necessarily true, or at least argue that the role that a more moderate or centrist um, framework uh, takes in the political sphere is equally as necessary for creating change as those extreme ideologies. So 
I guess I guess I can start by kind of defining what I think of when I say centrism, what I'm what I'm more or less trying to defend. Okay. Which is difficult because like anything, um, the label is applied so differently in different contexts. So I guess if I was to use the US as an example, I would actually say that, you know, like if you were saying I'm a centrist in the US political system, that would mean you would be in between Democrats and Republicans. But it's not very controversial, I don't think, to say that if you put that same person into a political system in Europe, they would be a pretty staunch conservative. So, you know, I mean, we are, we do live in the US, so maybe I should try and defend that position, but that's a little bit difficult for me because I do feel like it's not controversial to say that the sort of political spectrum in the US has shifted such that the position that I'm talking about is something more like a moderate Democrat, maybe even Joe Biden, right? Which yeah. is is kind of hard to say because a lot of people have said that since Joe Biden was elected, he's actually become a little bit more progressive than people thought he would. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think in some ways that he's um, still a pretty moderate politician and that it's tough because I think that some of the things that are called progressive in American politics are just business as usual in much of the world. And yeah. I don't know if I can totally divorce myself from that viewpoint. You know, yeah. that would be like me be pretending to be like a pretty staunch conservative. Um, so I think what I'm defending more is is uh, two things like moderation in general um, and sort of the role that pragmatism plays in politics, the need to base your solutions on what is actually politically viable, not on the sort of more utopian vision you have for the world. And I guess the way in which sometimes those utopian visions can cloud your mind from seeing what's actually possible within a given political system. Um, so I, you know, we'll use some actual political examples, but probably, <laughs> as said before, I think a lot of this is going to end up fairly high level and philosophical without maybe as many real world examples as would be would be good for a debate. Uh, but that's kind of where my position lies. I, I accept that definition of centrism, which I just learned is the actual word. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to be defending the, the concept, but people, which, by the way, this is the, the definition, the psychological definition of extreme zealots is uh, they <laughs> see things in black and white in the socially. They yeah, are suffering right. from psychological distress, whether that's economically or socially. Yeah, they have mental simplicity, which makes them overconfident in their judgments. Wait, you're and defending this position? <laughs> yes, I am, and they're oh, less okay, tolerant wow. of different views and opinions than moderates. So that's the psychological definition of. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to be defending and how I am characterizing um, these radical or extreme positions within any given ideology, politically. So, wow. So well, well, I've moved mine to be like almost more aligned with what I would consider to be my own views. You've gone full in and you're going to defend <laughs> like what, what I think a lot of yeah. people would kind of go against. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I did realize that, that in order for me to defend centrism in any capacity, you know, yeah. I, I think it's worth disclosing that I do consider myself progressive, you know, like that, that is just so all the viewers, uh, all you know, <laughs> a thousand or so of you are aware that that would con constitute some of my biases I think it's it's important that at least some of what I talk about is a defense for broadly the philosophy of conservatism, 
because anything that revolves centrism has to acknowledge that there's advantages to conservatism and there's advantages to, you know, being progressive, being liberal. Yeah. Well, some people would. Yeah, for sure. Some people would. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's what I'm, I'm debating on is the people who don't believe that there is any middle ground here. Um, yeah. So fair enough. I, I think, I think what's interesting, um, about this in particular, um, it, and something I learned about the history of left and right politics is it mm. started in the French Revolution. Yes, whereby, I did know that. Yeah, the president had was overwhelmed by counting votes. So he made people literally sit on the left of him or the right of him to determine to actually count the votes. And then that spread into popular culture into Britain and the United States, like the 1920s, to determine yeah. like who's you know, uh, bourgeoisie and who is not. But yeah. obviously those definitions have changed over time. They have changed. I, it, I actually just finished a whole podcast series on the French revolution. Mm. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear the part about the vote counting, but it sounded like, um, the way I heard it told was that I'm already going to win this debate. Just, just watch, nice. watch me just, watch, watch me just fucking slap you down right now. Go for it. <laughs> I actually fucking botched this, but, uh, um, Political power was was basically was um, moved to Paris, and a lot of these people that used to kind of come from different um, departments through the rest of France sort of congregated in Paris, and so they started living together and they started sitting together. That's how I heard was the reason why they all sat on one side because these people they sort of lived in the same sort of communities, and then when they went to the the legislative session or whatever, they uh, all ended up on the left and the right. What's interesting with the French Revolution is that it, you know, it was like they were all they were all bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie, bur bur fuck. Can we cut this in tight? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that, that's interesting because, like, from from my understanding, um, the there were like three estates, or there were three estates, but yeah. the third estate, which was the peasant class, that. Uh, were behind the revolution itself, made up 96% of the French population. Yeah, it's so much more... Like, it, it, this would probably derail the whole conversation, but I, I kind of thought something similar to that, but it's so much more complicated. Like, mm. the, the three estates... So, yes, like, essentially, they took power away from the nobility and the church, primarily. But the people who made up the, the um, third estate, I'm pretty sure it's the third estate. That's the, uh, that are the non nobles and the non church yeah. people. A lot of them were still quite wealthy and a lot of them want it. Like a lot of them who, the ones who held political power still, um, kind of wanted to get into the nobility because there was a way to buy your way into the nobility. But so, so while the French revolution did grant a lot more power to people who weren't nobles and even to the point where like nobles started renouncing their noble titles because it, it did go that way. They weren't like peasants. The peasants still didn't have that much power. Mm. Um, they probably, they got more power. They got more rights as things went on. But you're still talking about the people who were kind of the top tier of the third estate were all pretty wealthy merchants, whatever, you know. So this mm. this is probably too much of a tangent. But I, I like that you opened with that point about, you know, that was created this entirely arbitrary distinction of left and right, which has continued into politics today, I believe is where you were going with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I had no clue. Um, yeah. 
it, and it seemed like even on the topic because you know you brought like the, the revolution here you know how, how that kind of descended I, I mean revolutions are interesting in the way that they are fundamentally extremist movements whereby you know compared to the working government they they're either completely um untenable uh so they have to like correct this uh, egregious amount of social or economic inequality um with sometimes violence or um yeah. or small in smaller cases i guess ideological revolutions like prohibition um yeah. yeah but i don't know if those are driven by moderates in any case and some of which are like the french revolution are pretty damn important to modern democracy yeah no, the French Revolution is super interesting for that reason. And I mean, when I learn the history of it, like from this podcast, there's still a lot that I'd have to go back and, and reread just because it's so convoluted. But it, mm. it it doesn't end with, you know, it, it the revolution keeps going further left, further left, and more and more extreme points of view are being pushed. It doesn't start yeah. that way. It doesn't start that way at all. It starts with a pretty um, sort of, you know, enlightened, like, a, like, Similar reforms were happening even in countries that had monarchs, because that was part of the enlightenment where people were like, oh, like, you know, we need a more sort of constitutional monarchy in order for people not to like, yeah, go into revolt. France kind of lagged behind and they ended up with a revolution. But the actual kind of ideological currents of it were really not, you know, it's not very black and white. It's not like, oh, the poor people killed the rich people. That's what a lot of people think was the case, but it really wasn't the case. It was more like rich people killing other rich people and then later deciding that the people that were supposed to be the good ones were now too far off of the new, even more extreme ideology. So like the sort of window kept shifting and people kept being pushed out. And then towards the end, it was clearly more about power than it was about ideology. At least that's, again, all the PhD students can correct me. Yeah. <laughs> as I probably just butchered it, but that's sort of my understanding. Yeah. And I think you, you brought up an interesting point. Uh, for, for my research, even on revolutions in general, a lot of mm -hmm. the time they fail to take the form of the intellectual currents that created them because they're completely right. incompetent. So, right. like the Young Turk Revolution, they like dissidents, intellectuals, like trying to um, correct and democratize it and keep the Ottoman Empire which mm -hmm. failed and splintered once they gained power because they had mm -hmm. zero competency by which to actually affect the change they wanted to affect that the intellectuals had driven after the masses had taken over. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know much about that revolution. That's cool. Yeah. It sounds like it revolution, obviously, even if it has like it, it's, it's origins in a moderate, political, philosophical, like, like it's pinpointed there. Um, it, it's obviously driven by a larger swath of people who yeah. are convinced by those arguments, find it much more black and white, and actually take action from those extreme views. Yeah. Um, some of which are good. Like we got the American Revolution. That was pretty sick. Right. Which was also, I mean, I would say to the defense of my point, a fairly moderate revolution, mm. right? It was not a bunch of, again, I also, the same pot, <laughs> this podcast is actually about multiple revolutions and one of them, one of them was an American revolution, but I feel like I still, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I struggle with American history. This was interesting though, but mm. I believe the American, you know, it's like the American revolution is framed as like 
a bunch of oppressed people freeing themselves from the tyranny of the monarch, right? And I think there's some truth to that. But at the same time, it was a bunch of wealthy people who wanted to pay less taxes. Mm. You know, they weren't like completely oppressed. There was a, I mean, there was a lot of events that sort of um, stacked on each other. But even towards the end of it, like the Americans won the war because they made it not financially viable for Britain to keep going. It's not that they couldn't have potentially won. I mean, it was the fucking British Empire. They could have sent more troops in, but they decided it wasn't worth it and they just gave up. So I think the American Revolution gets painted as this, you know, there's there's two things that make it not the sort of high-minded thing <laughs> that it claims to be. I think one is the fact that they were all fairly rich people who kind of just wanted more control and less taxes. Again, PhD students will correct me as I'm fucking probably oversimplifying and butchering this, you know. And two, they did lay out like what I would say is like a pretty amazing, you know, sort of the 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 founding principles, but they completely ignored slavery. I mean, they 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 had a contradiction built into their, you know, all men are created equal, whatever. That was just it's like you can't look past that. Like it wasn't that high minded, you know, and maybe that's true of a lot of revolutions. But yeah, I, I think it it is interesting because I don't know how much of the economy at that point during the revolution was based on the slave trade. Um, certainly it propped us up economically for a period of time and perhaps was necessary for America to look the way it does today, which I know is, doesn't sound cool to say, but it's probably true. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's obviously difficult and I, I think it's worth noting that you know, sometimes extreme positions need to be extreme in the way that they relate to some sort of absolute moralistic power. Like the idea that mm -hmm. like all men are created equal, great, probably should not be compromised on, mm -hmm. right? Probably shouldn't find a moderate position for that um, because we're yeah. by finding moderate positions between two extremes, we can sacrifice um, equity in a big way. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a very good point that, <laughs> you know, this would probably be a huge point against centrism in the historical context, mm. right? Like if you were a centrist during the, when the abolition <laughs> movement was gaining traction, you look garbage in the eyes of history. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people would turn that around and say, if you're a centrist now, in a hundred years, people are going to look back and be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, now that we have, you know, assuming things get better in the next hundred years and sort of sort of human rights and, and progress, you know, um, continue on a upward trend, it would be like, oh, you were a centrist when it came to like Black Lives Matter. Or you were a centrist when it came to universal health care. Yeah, now that you know things are more equally distributed, how did you? It's the same as you were a centrist back in the days, you know, in Nazi Germany. And you were kind of like, well, then you, you know, you were just as good. I think I saw. I told you I was gonna start fucking arguing against myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw when I was like doing my research. I saw this graph that was saying like centrists are more likely to go along with fascists because they're easily swayed or this and right. that. You know, and that's fairly true. And. So again, I have to change the I have to change what I'm talking about a little bit and say that that's not the type of centrism I'm defending. That I don't think that really can be defended because I think there are things in 
history and in politics where, yeah, one side is wrong. There is no moderate position. It's just wrong. And, you know, slavery is a great example. I think Nazi Germany is a great example of that. Um, but I think that a good centrist or whatever you want to call it, a moderate, someone who's willing to challenge the sort of tribal black and white framework should be able to see when one side is sort of unequivocally correct about something. And that should, one of the goals of being a more moderate, being a more centrist person is that you are able to at least attempt to step out of ideological binaries and understand that like, yes, both sides can be wrong. Both sides can be right. You know, I would have agreed with you before I started researching this, because I'm about to bring up something that I don't think you're going to have anything to say to. Because oh, it's shit. so weird and oh it, shit, let's go. Um, there's a a mathematical study in the Physical Review letters published um, in the last number of years, and it really showed the inability for for it showed a couple things. So like the inability for moderate positions to change minds on either sides, which in mm -hmm. itself is pretty shitty because sure. How are you going to affect change if you can't communicate or convert either side holding an opinion, hmm. but also showed how stupid um, these people are. So anytime you have like an A and a B extremist position, um, when any specific position in terms of their adoption rate falls below a critical value, the rest of that extremist takes over all of the moderates. So wow. all of the moderates completely disappear because wow. they're all converted because there's not this balance of power in terms of mm -hmm. the argument mm -hmm. that they're hearing mm -hmm. through advertising specifically, not even socially. Um, so now I'm just thinking everyone on the moderate side is a big dum dum who is only surviving on the mere fact that two sides are fucking arguing and they can't right. make up a position because they're just at the same critical value. Hmm. That is interesting, right? And it does make some sense. Allow me to steer this in an extremely, <laughs> <laughs> allow me to steer this in an extremely sort of metaphysical philosophical Oh no, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I, know you're, I know you're just waiting for that to happen. <laughs> if, we had a few, if we had a few listeners up until this point, they're about to completely drop off and stop <laughs> listening to this. I'm about to go into territory that is just, garbage to talk about and probably doesn't have <laughs> a actual resolution. But I think about okay. this a lot. I think about this a lot because I think that like, I mean, it's such a hot topic is like, in my mind, like binary thinking, black and white, good versus evil. That's like so much of human history has revolved around that. In my mind, so much of philosophy gets kind of stuck on this sort of problem of, you know, there's the famous quote, um, Who's it by? You can never step into the same river twice. Oh, Zeno, Ep I think. No, it's like Epa. You can never. I'm Googling it. Are you sure that's not fucking Zeno? Uh, it was similar era. I don't think it was Zeno. Can... Epictetus? Same river twice. Epicurious? Epa... I don't think so. Heraclitus. 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 So, anyway, there's this, you know. A lot of Buddhism, a lot of sort of philosophy deals with the fact that humans 
perceive the world in terms of black and white, but we know deep down, or, or I guess I should reframe it, like our language talks about things in terms of black and white. You're like, oh, it's night, it's day. But we all know that night is a cycle that bleeds into day. The river's always flowing. You know, things are in a constant state of motion. There is no actual extreme. There's just these shades in between. But it's kind of, it's like a paradox. You can't really escape it because you have to make decisions. You know, you have to think about things and you have to choose one or the other. Like I always, I always think about this. It's like, things aren't really black and white. And I think a lot of, you know, science and philosophy does exist to help people understand the subtleties of the various forces at work in the world. And even all the way down to fucking quantum physics and shit, you're using these categories and labels to explain something that's extremely complicated, but with enough work, science can make mathematical models that are predictive that, that do their job. Right. So, it's really interesting to ask that same question in the context of politics and social change, because I do follow a lot of, you know, people on Twitter who kind of fall into this sort of centrist category. They're like, well, we just kind of want the evidence to show and I'll abandon, I'll abandon my position as soon as new evidence comes along to challenge it. I'm not married to this binary. I'm just holding this hypothesis until it gets challenged and removed. And that seems like a really sensible way to approach politics. Let's test things and see what works and not get caught up in ideology. But to what you were saying, I, I question if that's even realistic because even those same people that feel like they're like, oh, I'm, I've, I follow the science. They all have ideologies and they all get biased towards certain things, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think to that point, the, like I had mentioned briefly, like in that study, Social pressure did not make a sustainable force for changing minds. Only mm -hmm. external stimuli like marketing campaigns were the <laughs> only scalable mm -hmm. and consistent effect that it had, even if they drove the stubbornness rating for moderates up. Is the mm -hmm. only thing that kept the moderates alive and both extreme zealot sides independent and not in complete and total power. So yeah. that involves like government campaigns to like create moderates, like social, mm -hmm. like marketing campaigns to create moderates and, and try to expand the thinking because these two dumb people are influencing each other. The really stupid ones I'm defending who believe the world's black and white. And the little moderates who have no idea what's going on, who are easily swayable between mm -hmm. these two stupid people. Mm -hmm. So indecisive mm -hmm. stupid people and stupid people who have opinions, it seems. Yeah, no, that's, that is interesting. And that gets like <laughs> sort of back to where it would be more useful to know more of political science and sort of this stuff has all been studied so, so well. And again, we're just a couple of idiots. So don't yeah. really know all the, <laughs> you know, it's like, this has been studied to a T. I, I remember hearing on uh, another podcast, somebody talking about how, you know, the, the goal is always to move the middle, right? That the goal is always to move the middle, but it sounds like what you're saying is the only way to do that is to use extreme positions. Um, what I think is interesting too, kind of going back to what I was saying about like, you know, did you, did you watch the social dilemma? The, no, I missed it. Netflix 
anyway, um, I mean, social media echo chambers, I'm sure you've, you know, you know, that kind of those talking points, like we're all kind of deep into that right now. And I do wonder how much different it is now than it was. I mean, maybe earlier in human history, it was easier to get a lot of people to all agree on something because there was only one, there was only a few sources of information. That's probably a rabbit hole we don't need to go down. But we're kind of in this, at this juncture where there's all this information out, there's all these information silos, echo chambers that people, you know, yeah, you can be anti-vaxxer, you can be a fucking flat earther, you can jump into your little echo chamber. And then you have people, you know, like us who are sort of more intellectually minded. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how to avoid echo chambers, but at some level we know that we're in one, right? Like, I think it would be impossible for us to deny the fact that yes, even though we're trying to do a podcast about differing positions, this is all going to fit into some echo chamber that if we could see a further view out would be like, oh yeah, they're in the kind of, you know, liberal intellectual, whatever bubble. Um, so it's, it's, it's like, is it just a fact of life that, that we have to have this? Is it, is, or is it, or can we continue to move forward as a society? I guess this would be my case for centrism. Can we continue, can we continue to move into the information age in a way in which whatever ideologies we have are informed by a greater perspective that does take into account the way that reality is complicated, that it isn't black and white. Can we start to integrate that more into our political system and our information um, ecosystem? I don't know, because I, I think the the democracy we have, right? And I, here, here's a point that I think is is unique to the idea of effectiveness when people are voting um, and, and, and their effectiveness of their, um, to act on your constituents' behalf, is people like to vote for people who they know what action they're going to take in a different scenario. And if we have all these different political candidates who have all these nuanced theories and completely differing ideas that are not left and right, kind of this, yeah. this black and white look at the world, that you have yeah. no fucking clue how they're going to act in a ton of different scenarios. Right. Um, which I don't even know how that works democratically. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think one of the videos that I watched that was against centrism said almost exactly that same thing, where it's like, why would you get into politics if you don't have a very clear idea of what you want to do? Mm. <laughs> you know? Right. There, I mean, there are those people in politics. You know, we do have our, our moderates and... I mean, Joe Biden is probably a pretty good example of that, where I read some article that was before the was before the election, um, before Joe Biden won. I think actually it was before he had even declared his candidacy. Mm. And it was talking about how you've got Bernie Sanders and, you know, Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, they're kind of competing for the same set of voters, this kind of progressive left sort of liberal, you know, whatever. Um but that somebody like Joe Biden had a chance to grab people who don't necessarily fall into that. But it's like, is Joe Biden actually a moderate? Could you call him a centrist? By one definition of the term, I think you could, because he's kind of saying, hey, don't worry, we're not gonna go crazy and jump over to all this extreme shit, but here's some things I am gonna do. And you don't have to worry about this. I'm Joe Biden, I'm approachable. You know, like, I think that probably definitely played a part in him winning, especially with people fearing that Trump would win if the, the Democrats had a too progressive of a candidate. I do think that's somewhat of a real world example of a more moderate political ideology 
working on the American public. Yeah, and I think almost what we saw there is a a critical mass of um, MAGA homies who <laughs> inspired a another group to take further action than they typically would. So, mm-hmm. like they. This is the the 2020 election was the highest turnout since 1960 for a presidential campaign in terms of voting percentage. Um, And I think a lot of the reasons why people are engaged democratically and why this was such a big election is because we had these extremist positions which pushed people into action. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that was to vote for a moderate candidate like Joe Biden. And honestly, I've seen a lot of articles researching for this that said Donald Trump was just a moderate Republican. Mm-hmm. So like we're voting for moderates in these, um, these political parties, but it is the extremist action, which people are fucking afraid of that are going now expanding on both sides that created like a huge turnout. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very true. Um, and, uh, yeah, the article also mentioned Trump, and it did talk about how he, when he won his election, um, he did take more moderate positions than other Republicans. He took some unpopular positions that were like, you know, I'm not going to cut um, Social Security or Medicaid yeah. or something like that, uh, you know, and that was like less. But but the sort of, sort of outsider people, the people who were like didn't want to elect an establishment Republican were like, oh, cool. He kind of just does his own thing. Of course, once he got into office, I feel like it was more clear that he pretty much just towed the party line and did whatever, you know. Um, But going back to the idea of these extreme positions, I think it's really interesting that um, something I've heard proposed before is that these very extreme positions where we see these like super polarized things that you see on Twitter and social media, very few people actually fall into those categories. So, and and within each separate group, God, there's oh man, there's a name for this. It's like the the outgroup fallacy or something. I don't remember what it is. It was really I read about this. And it was really interesting. It's like you perceive within your group, you perceive a lot of differences of opinions, a lot of shades of moderate or more extreme within your group, but the other group you see as brainwashed, and that's true whether you're conservative or Democrat. You're like, oh, they're all extreme. They can't think for themselves. We always do that to the out group. Within our group, we can see, oh, no, no, there's there's discussion, there's debates on issues. And I think to a certain extent, the most extreme positions that we see out there are barely real. And they are becoming increasingly propped up by clickbait, social media, just sort of out outrage porn, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I think you're 100 percent right. Um, although I, I did read some articles that talked about how the the GOP in particular has a lower level of partisanship internally than it had um, previously, so they're becoming more homogenous over time. But I don't know if that's something that I've recognized through watching Republicans talk. Like, who who is that really? Who is that outrage porn? goddess in the oh, um God. what is her name for the so many of them <laughs> oh she she just got elected i think marjorie something oh, green yeah marjorie taylor green i think taylor green and mtg i mean that doesn't seem true to me just from looking at even how republicans are acting um or reacting to her weird shit um 
but yeah, I, it, I, I think it's, it, it's definitely, I, I've completely lost my train of thought by the way, because well, Tiffany is now doing laundry behind me. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. No, I think you're spot on. I think that, uh, I think, I think there is a lot to be said that the Republican Party of the United States is pretty far off the deep end at this point. Mm. And I don't think, <laughs> you know, I, I would like to, I said I was gonna defend conservatism a little bit, so maybe this yeah. is a good spot to do that because I, I watched one video that was sort of about the idea of conservatism. Mm -hmm. And it's a really good question whether the current state of the Republican Party in America represents anything like what would be considered traditional conservative values. Right. I don't think we can even have that debate on this podcast because there's so many different factors that influence it and the history of conservative politics in the US and you know the race aspect, it's, it's so multifaceted. But stepping back from that and talking about, like I don't think you can argue that there's no value in conservatism because it's so broad. Like there are times when it makes sense to take change slowly and to, uh, you know, consider that some traditional values may have reasons for being there. Another thing that I, I think I've heard this before, but it was reiterated in this video that I didn't really think about is that like, I think one thing that conservatives sometimes get right is that human beings are fucking greedy and can't be trusted that a system should plan for the fact that people will try to, you know, essentially take advantage of whatever system is put in place. Um, so the problem though is in so much as that we're talking about American politics is it's really not clear if any, it's really not clear if the Republican party stands for anything, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Aside from power and trying to stop the Democrats, you know, I'm sure somebody would. I mean, I'm sure uh, I'm showing my true colors here, but I, I, I've heard a lot of arguments that basically say that. Do you agree or disagree? So I, I agree in one sense, because it seems to me like uh, conservative movements are, are reactive in, in their nature. They react to progressive measures that are being introduced. Um, and they yes, go, hey, uh, let's yeah. not fucking do that. I mean, obviously, these conservatives don't give a shit about uh, conserving our ecology um, of the United States. They want to conserve some values and some longstanding laws and social orders. So, yeah, yeah I don't think they're conservatives all around, um, nor maybe do they stand for traditional family values. Uh but I think they, they have to be reactive in nature as they are fighting against progressives who are not reactive in nature and they're being uh, proactive in nature. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that is that is kind of built into like that is sort of built into being conservative. If you didn't have anything to react to, then everything would just stay the same. Right. Yeah. But at, this, at the same time, like. And I think this is another sort of a case for a moderate centrist viewpoint is, is you have to understand that no conservative wants zero change. I mean, maybe someone does, but most conservatives understand that things do change and need to change in order for society to function, to move forward. The world is not going to be the same world. It was a couple of years ago, whatever. 
change is necessary, but conservatives argue for slow, deliberate change. Progressives, um, also same thing. It's like no, very few progressives would say we have to change everything all the time. You know, I mean, there are like the, the extreme sort of, you know, communist, Marxist, whatever, they want to overthrow everything and rebuild a whole new full-on revolutionaries. I think that's a valid position as well. Obviously, for the reasons we talked about before, it's like sometimes the only way for progress to happen is a big fucking revolution. But it's easy to say like, you know, that there's no middle ground. It's just like you're either, oh, old time values, you know, keep keep everything the same, keep the family unit, whatever, or you're like, ah, fucking change the whole, so you know, destroy capitalism, go full on socialism. I mean, the Democratic Party as it stands in the United States is clearly a capitalist party, not a socialist party. It's just that the fucking Republicans call them socialists at every opportunity. Obama was a super moderate president and he got called a, a socialist at like every opportunity. So, I mean, clearly this just sort of goes back in circles of like the discourse is fucked, right? The discourse is fucked up. Yeah. And I think that that does come from, again, like the, there, there's actually, there is an interesting um, uh, theory called the significance quest theory that applies specifically to extreme political ideologies that fall in this sort of black and white A and B kind of position that we had spoken about where people are radicalized by their psychological distress to find a quest for significance in a meaningful cause in a group. Mm. And I think that they, people are, are constantly finding this outrage intentionally to make their position or their motives or whatever they're doing significant in their eyes. So having like a natural discourse that is reasonable and measured doesn't do that. It just doesn't, it doesn't inspire people the same way that like when they believe that they are kind of like a, um, what, it's not Nathan and Goliath. What is that? What is the other dude? Who is the Goliath and what? Uh, David, David. <laughs> Although I like Nathan and Goliath too. Um, unless they think they're like David and Goliath and they're, they're, they're fighting for what's right. And the other side, I mean, they has to have that demonization no. um, and that opposition but they affect change like the yeah. there, there was a, a paper called who makes our laws published by the U S Naval Academy where they talk their, their conclusion is like legislation is an option largely reserved for those members with no electoral fears, few electoral mm -hmm. fears, which means they have mm -hmm. to have a mm -hmm. very consistent broad and kind of extreme message to resonate over time with their constituents. Otherwise they're not putting out fucking legislation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been said a lot that, you know, that one of the big differences between American politics and, you know, other political systems is that we have a two party system mm. and yeah, it's, you know, it's not hard to see that, given a few more parties, you would still get a lot of the benefits you were talking about because people would rally to those parties, you know, and they would understand that this, I like this position, this party, I agree with them. But if you have like, you know, three or four parties all controlling seats in parliament, it, it would seem that there would be more pathways for compromise. Whereas when 
the only opposition you really have is the Democrats on the one mm. side and the Republicans on the other side, and you're you're stuck fighting them. You know, it's interesting that uh, going back to something we were talking about earlier, people often say that the Republicans are more unified, and that the problem with the Democratic Party is that it's not as unified, and there is more shades of belief within it, and there are more far left, and there are more moderates, um, which people have often said hurts the Democrats. And maybe, I mean, you know, with the way the election went, it it, it is concerning that combining the uh, sort of difficulty of the Democrats to unify with the already really challenging political landscape we have with the Electoral College that we kind of barely beat Donald Trump, which to your other point may have been because he was such a polarizing figure in the first place. You know, he was fucking like, if, if you have a moderate Republican as the incumbent, who, who, who probably who handles COVID even remotely well, there's no shot, at least in my mind, there's no shot a Democrat wins, especially since we had already had a vaccine announced by that point. Like it took someone as extreme as Donald Trump to allow the Democrats to win. Maybe. No one will know for sure, but. Yeah, um, and it is interesting. And, and, and the Republicans, you know, they had power for such a long period of time there. Um, I would be curious from the perspective of the constituents um, if they got done as much as they wanted done in a naturally conservative group, like is doing less something that they are looking for? Like, did that accomplish the goals they were looking for doing less for four years rather than doing more beyond like the, the, you know, small, immigration bills that went through building a wall and not even like comprehensive reform. Yeah. The tax cuts, that was like their big thing they got done. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great point. It reminded me of one of the videos I watched talking about this, about how like, um, Oh my God, I'm going to embarrass myself trying to remember us history. But, um, when the Republicans gained power again, sort of, um, after, after, um, the new whole sort of new deal era, there was kind of a pushback to conservatism because after World War II and the New Deal and all that, there was the national government's power had expanded greatly, right? Mm. You know, there was a lot more welfare and it was necessary because of the depression and, you know, like it, it had to happen. And so the Republicans, the conservatives gained power based on kind of fighting against it. They say, hey, the government's gotten too big. And maybe it was getting too big for some people's liking because that's kind of just what happened in order to expand welfare in the United States. But even then, they weren't able to repeal some of the more popular things. Like it kind of mirrors, like they couldn't, you know, repeat, you know, they couldn't push back Medicaid or Social Security or whatever it was because those things, people liked those policies. And that's kind of like, gets back to the idea of like a political pragmatism where it's like, once voters have, have enough support for something, even if, it's a, even if it's not aligned with you ideologically, you kind of have to compromise your ideologically for the, the pragmatic pathway. And I think Trump and the Republicans ran into that exact same problem when they tried to get rid of Obamacare because it was just too popular and it was working too well. They, they, they didn't have, they couldn't go back to the way things were and they knew it. They couldn't offer up anything. They were forced to keep it, you know, which a lot of people will just say is that means they, they couldn't govern, you know, which maybe they couldn't, but they were, they had to bend to the pragmatic solution. And even though it was in opposition to their ideology. Yeah, the, that that is interesting. Yeah, and I, I don't know what they could have 
because Obamacare, I remember by some studies before it was put into law, was not as popular as you may have assumed it was. I think I had like a 42% support from um, hmm. uh, a study I'd seen, which almost seems like if the conservatives had it right, like the majority of the American public did not want this, even in its, in, in its granted its watered down form because of that compromise yeah. that had to happen, yeah. which made people really fucking unhappy. Yeah. Um, obviously it got passed and perhaps people are enjoying that, that now, or maybe the populace has just changed over that time being skewed younger and being other parents healthcare. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I will say one interesting thing I noted was there are, are more bills that are passed under moderate control in the U S which is against mm -hmm. my, my point. Um, but what I thought was interesting and that I had never considered as a metric um, is the substantive content of those bills. So while apparently more bills are passed under moderate control, the chart is like less substantive, like substantive overall, making them like less um, outcome driven and more like here's a national holiday um, that we want to choose or yeah. let's yeah. let's name something else. So it's like yeah. things that people can easily agree on, but they're not actually doing anything. They're not actually doing much. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, that people will probably say that's just kind of the gridlock of our system and yeah, I was, I, the, the last video I watched, I feel like was really interesting. It was about like, it was about pragmatism versus ideology. And I think it touched on a lot of stuff we're saying where it's like, without ideology, you don't really have a clear goal of what you want to do. Right. But that pragmatism has become so ingrained in modern politics because it's all driven by polling numbers and, you know, what, what's acceptable, like where, where's the Overton window at that you can, you can deal with these issues now in this current political climate and what's, what's still something you can't really do. Um, but it was talking about like Australia and Sweden and I, it, a little bit went over my head because I just don't know those governments well, but it seems like they had some pretty big reforms that happened, but which weren't only driven by um, the sort of left factions. They were driven even in some parts by conservatives realizing that they had no choice but to go along with these programs to help prop up the economy and expand welfare in certain situations. Mm. Um, and they just kind of knew they had to do it to stay relevant. Um, which, mm. you know, I guess it kind of gets back to that idea that like at the end of the day, the voters do have power, like popular opinion does have power, but we feel a lot of times in the U S that especially Republican voters are being tricked into supporting policies that are antithetical to their well-being right right and i think that's hard to argue against <laughs> like i think there's so much evidence that that's true you know um yeah i mean it, it's well yeah it has to be because they're they're arguing for a smaller government for less welfare programs in general and some and inevitably a, a lot of those people, like most of the people in the United States, can deal with a little bit of welfare and can deal with a little bit of um, uh, a little bit more structure around the laws and regulations that we have here. Mm -hmm. But I'm, similar arguments can be made against liberals. And to be clear, this argument isn't against, you know, left and right. It is against the extreme left and the extreme right and how they reconcile those beliefs in party and outside of party. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I always think about is that, is it better to come to the bargaining table? You know, I think they, they say this a lot in, in all forms of, of, of like deal making and stuff that you don't want to ask, you know, you don't want to come to the table asking for a slice and end up with crumbs. You want to ask for the full pie and get a slice, you know, but that doesn't even seem very tenable <laughs> in current day American politics, because it just seems like, you know, they're talking about getting, like the filibuster and there's been a lot of discussion about that. And, you know, there's the moderate, you know, Joe Manchin or whatever, who doesn't want to get rid of it. I haven't, I haven't kept up on that discussion exactly, but it's like someone who's saying something's like, oh, it's like, it's not that, that the system is broken. It's that the people in the system are not being, are not using the system in the way that it's supposed to be used. Hmm. But I, I don't exactly know where I was going with that, but it's, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's almost easier not to talk about American politics because it just seems like such, there's such so many layers, especially when it comes to sort of the oligarchic side of things that are in place to keep certain status quos preserved, no matter what. Yeah. Um, you know, it, one thing I thought was interesting, um, even learning about like, Hey, hey! What what bills are there's are most likely to pass? There's a uh, something called like an analysis methodology, like a prognosis for bills that hit the floor. And I mm -hmm. guess less and less individual bills are actually proceeding um, in Congress. But instead, it's everything is tacked on. All of these extreme positions or compromises are tacked on inside of these omnibus bills. And that's where yeah. the majority of our bills are being passed. Where's only 7% of fucking laws that even hit that floor proceed forward. Um, which I thought was pretty interesting. And most of it's driven by old dudes. Um, they have like metrics where you can kind of determine what the prognosis of is of a bill is at the beginning. 55% of uh, bills that come in with a sponsor on a relevant committee chair pass. 46% for a co-sponsor from a relevant committee chair. Like these are just old dudes who again are not worried about re-election because they have a solid base with their particular view set that's stable and solid and extreme. Yeah. And that's how they pass those bills and they have a much higher likelihood of, of going. Um, and to your point, like one of the, the least likely ways that you could start a bill, which I thought was interesting, was in relief of had a negative coefficient to it. Like you, if you put that as the start of your bill, fucking everything, you're never going to pass it. Which oh, that, yeah. was, that was kind of an interesting Jeez. statistic. Weird. Yeah. That is really weird. Uh, yeah. And again, I'm an idiot. I mean, American politics is so complicated and there's so much more to understand about it than what I could even speak to. I did start watching a video. I didn't quite finish this one, but I want to. And the title of the video is a YouTube video of a guy who's pretty, he's, he does a lot of cool kind of political commentary videos and talks about philosophy and, you know, whatever. Um, it was like um, millennial socialism and centrist dads. <laughs> cool. And it was talking about, you know, I think there is there is some political theory that was put out that it was like it's always about the generational shifts. And once one generation phases out of power and the next generation comes into power, that is where we see these big systemic shifts start to take place. 
because the old guard transitions to the new guard. And I guess this theory has been also been pretty heavily critiqued as well, that it's an oversimplification and it's, it's much too much of a binary. And it's not like you can say like, oh, you know, this generation supports this and they just have to wait till this generation loses power. But, you know, this, this video covered a lot of topics, talked about how, you know, potentially the, you know, the, the recession, the 2008, you know, housing market crash really galvanized a lot of millennials into <laughs> being like, Hey, socialism doesn't sound too bad because I can't fucking afford to buy a right. house. Like, whereas, you know, people who still had money and they had property, it's like, yeah, I don't fucking, you know, I don't fucking like give up, give up the economic system that allowed me to prosper. Cause I grew up in, you know, such a prosperous era where the housing market was, was accessible and you could, you know, you buy the right stocks and stuff. You could create generational wealth and, and move it forward. You know, it's, but he made some good points. Cause he's like, you don't want to oversimplify. Like there's, there's plenty of rich millennials too that are doing great just fine, you know? And yeah, maybe they'll be like, Oh yeah, I, I support socialism too, you know, but then suddenly you buy a house and you look at your property taxes and it's like, um, I, I didn't finish the video, so I didn't hear kind of his like conclusion, whether he thought there was any merit to that or not. But I think it's tempting for me. It's always been tempting for me to think that like our only shot, this isn't even like a good hope. It's just sort of what I think sometimes the, the best shot at change happening is just the new generation coming into power because there's more cohesion around things that I care about. But they're, they're like every generation. They like you mentioned when they buy that property, they're they're under. So when you're young and broke, you have a, a completely different psychological distress, yeah. um, and your psychological distress shifts in its area, um, and then your focus yeah. and overall values and things that you need to see change shift. So what are the chances that over time, if the, our country is prosperous and people are able to accrue wealth easily? that more progressive and welfare-based agendas are able to come up with the next generation. Like how long is our generation going to feel if we end up getting money and being more stable, like they want to invest in a socialist society? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an excellent question <laughs> that I don't even know how to answer. I don't think it's like, I, I think that like, it's interesting to look at the broad pattern of human history, which again would be an awesome thing to look at if I was a historian as not just an idiot, but <laughs> Hey, yeah. we're still going, we're, Hey, we're still doing this. So yeah. <laughs> um, there was a book that I wanted to read called like non zero sum. I have not read it, but it, it, the thesis was that human progress has been moving towards a greater col greater collaboration across the world. And there's been a fairly consistent move towards more collaboration and less fighting among, you know, states and factions and things. Yep. Um, there's also been things that have been put out recently that say that despite our problems and potentially notwithstanding the impending climate disaster, we are living sort of by, by every metric, we're living in the best time in human history. Even, even comparing rates of poverty and, you know, you know, death rates and things like that in the poorest countries. Um, and I guess to bring it sort of full circle back to my position, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to change things. It definitely doesn't mean things could not get a lot better, but you have to temper 
how much better things can get with the fact, and this is, I would also say this is something of a conservative talking point with the fact that we are a better society, a more tolerant society than we were a hundred years ago. Um, and that, you know, human, like nature and just human beings in general is, is just brutal. It is brutal. It is exploitation. It is, you know, sort of oppressing people, enslaving people at every turn of history that's been happening. And so it's worth being happy about the fact that we actually are in a, a more enlightened society today than we ever have been. Um, does that mean that extreme positions are not necessary? Maybe not. But I do think it means that overly utopian thinking and overly like, you know, I have a lot of friends who I would consider more on the sort of extreme side of like the left. And I feel like they spend a lot of time just talking about how awful capitalism is and how just how fucked up the, the world that we live in is, you know, and it's like it seems depressing. I'm like, man, like I, I feel bad that you focus on this so much. Um, and so I can kind of be like, you know, maybe just be sort of grateful that we have what we have and try and like look at the things you can change and don't just like like fucking just hate capitalism and hate the fact that, you know, things are so unequal. And there's so much so much wealth distribution. But I want to throw it back to you because I think there is a valid other argument that said that kind of thinking is defeatist in and of itself because you're not aspiring enough. You're like, oh, hey, things aren't so bad. Things are better than they were 100 years ago. We don't need to get, get crazy and fucking you know, go nuts with it. But people would definitely argue against me on that, which I believe is the position you're, you're still assigned to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I do. And it, what it seems to me from doing the one hour of research that I did, uh, also being really stupid. <laughs> is that the the extremists, which are sometimes intellectuals in and of themselves, who are, who are driving these movements, these uh, cultural revolutions, are bringing ideas down from the TikTok mountaintop, like the R word mountaintop, <laughs> these really <laughs> stupid ideas that are really extreme. And the moderates are able to not generate them themselves, but rather take and adopt those ideas or converted to those ideas or pieces of those ideas over time. So without those ideologues, these zealots, we would not have progression from moderate bases in and of themselves. It takes the extremists to lend those ideas and those visions of what a country or society could be for to eventually get widespread adoption through popularized campaigns. Like yeah. healthcare. I mean, I don't know how long we've been talking about universal healthcare in the United States. It doesn't seem like very long, but we are we have extremists on one side or the other who are polling to bring in a majority of Americans to adopting yeah. that viewpoint. Yeah, which is all the more frustrating if you want, you know, if you if you believe in universal health care and you see what happened to Obamacare, you know, when it, it did have the, I believe if I remember correctly, it was, it was um, one Senator, I think it was uh, Joseph Lieberman who basically killed the single, the single payer option. Mm. Um, there's something like that where it was like, it literally came down to one moderate dude who was like, no, uh, like my, you know, I, and it was, it was around elections. Like my constituents, my constituents wouldn't support that, but Kind of to what you were saying, would that have even been possible without the extreme position? It didn't start from a moderate position. It needed the extreme position. And, you know, I, when I was younger, 
I, I had more utopian thinking and I, I imagined kind of like a society that was very like social. I, I would like, I would like do a thought experiment. Like what about a society without money? Right. As I've gotten older, I'm like, that doesn't seem possible. Like I can't imagine a way that it would make sense. Like money is not perfect, but it's like, it makes the most sense for the structuring of economies. <laughs> Maybe there's some crazy theories out there that, that, that step away from money, but, um, you know, a lot of people on the left, a lot of people that I'm friends with on Facebook kind of say that the, the evil of the world's of the sort of the evil forces in our world are explained by capitalism and the way in which colonialism sort of created capitalism on the scale that it's on today, that that is really, and I don't really argue with that. I've been reading this book, um, guns, germs, and steel. We probably talked about this before. Do you know that book? No. Oh, it's really interesting. This is getting a little far afield, but how much time, how long have we been doing this by the way? We're an hour and 10. Okay. Okay. Seems like we're, hey, we're we're chugging into our fucking epic conclusion where we like come down and like. Uh... I was a little worried we went last past ten minutes with the points I had, so I'm pretty happy we made it an hour. Well, it's like I said, it has not been a formal debate. It's just been, but <laughs> yeah, we we keep referring back to our original position, so I think that's yes. something. This is a bit of a tangent, but I I like I like thinking about it this way, so. It's, this is like a long book. It's a pretty famous book. And the, the basic um, uh, thesis of the book is that um, the reasons why the Europeans were essentially able to conquer the world has everything to do with environmental advantages that they had. Um, one of the primary ones being food production in the Fertile Crescent, which allowed civilization. Centralized food production led to civilization, led to political structures, technology like guns, um, it also, the, the germs part is also because people living in, in denser societies create more diseases. Um, and so because, you know, the Indians living across the Americas or in other places didn't have all of that technology, didn't have centralized agriculture and big societies. I mean, they did to a certain extent, but not to the level of the Europeans. Like there was the Incas, the Aztecs. They had civilizations in parts, but, you know, the Native Americans of North America you know, very limited. Um, and so uh, smallpox and, you know, U European colonialism killed uh, a staggering percentage of them. And basically that combined with the fact that slaves were brought from Africa over to the new world, you know, it, 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 it basically in my mind creates the modern world today. And the only place that wasn't really conquered by colonialism, I shouldn't say the only place, but like the main was was Asia because they also had advanced technology and civilizations. You know, China, Japan, those places were they were connected to the Europeans because um, this is actually really interesting. This is completely this is going really far off topic, so I apologize, but <laughs> because the axis of the continent runs from east to west food and crops and technology was able to spread rapidly across the European continent. That was not true in the Americas or in Africa because it runs from north to south and the climate changes. So you can't plant a crop in 
you know, you, the, the same crops that would grow in one climate band would grow on the other side of the hemisphere, but you couldn't get it there. So this, along with a lot of other factors, basically has led us to the world we have today. And if you ask me, it is kind of fucked up, right? The fact that the Europeans literally just genocided huge swaths of native people, brought in other native people from Africa to then work and you know produce wealth for them essentially for free as slaves. And then essentially that led to the building of this entire society. And you know, a lot of people are kind of on this sort of decolonization movement or this, this anti-capitalist movement. And it's like, I get it, but I also just feel like that's what happened. I mean, that's the world we have in front of us is shaped by all those dark forces. There's only so much we can do about it because it just happened that way. All right, sorry, again, that was a huge long tangent, but... <laughs> no, I, I think I can tie this back. I mean, even to the, the points we're making, like colonialism obviously has... It, it is this double-edged sword. It is, we are the products of colonialism in yep. great ways and in horrible ways. And we, and many of the people who should be here today are not products of that because their ancestors were killed off. And I think the, to escape the horrors of colonialism, we've seen success stories from natives like in the Haitian revolution in, in 1791, where they were, occupied by France. Um, this is how they facilitate their independence from France. They riots from the deaths, from outside diseases, the taking of their assets, the social inequality on, on class, skin color, and gender. Um, and they had to break free from it. And they had to break free from it by not taking a moderate position of concession to the, the French um, government who had taken over their city, but to be revolutionaries and to take a stand that is extreme and, and not conciliatory and not, there's no, there's no compromise that can be had there when you're trying to protect your people from absolute disaster. I'm um, happy. Yeah. yeah. No, um, I'm glad you brought that up actually. Wait, we're sorry. Were you finished with that? Was that your, your main point? That's about, all I that, got. That's, that's a success story. No, no, no. That's great. I actually, <laughs> this same, I love that. We keep going back to this podcast I've been listening to because it's the podcast is just called revolutions. You should actually check it out. It's, it's, mm. it's a lot, but like the Haitian revolution is the last one that I finished. I'm now mm. on the uh, Spanish revolution with similar things happening in, in, in South America. Um, and Yes, like you're, you're completely right. That the, the Haitian Revolution is the only successful slave uprising in human history. It's the only time that the slaves um, succeeded in winning their freedom, essentially. And it, 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 it did involve extremist positions, although if you chart the whole path of that revolution, it wasn't always one single extreme ideology. It was a the, for a while in, in Haiti, what's interesting is that the, the black slaves and the um, colored, they called them, which were like sometimes a lot of times they were of mixed race and they had more status because it was like, you know, a French dude married one of the black women. And so they, they were able to move up. They, for a while, were opposed to each other, which is in many ways another fucked up part of colonialism is that even though they shared more racial ties to the slaves, they weren't slaves and they, for a good part of eventually they came together and slavery was abolished. But for a good part of the revolution, it was still like the slaves didn't have freedom even among their own people who were wealthier. Um, 
but they did succeed. They did succeed. But what's fucked up about it and where, again, I kind of go to this sort of harsh reality is that Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. They've had a string of dictators which treated their people horribly. Even after winning all that freedom, they've continued to just, you know, be kicked around by American interests coming in and, 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 and using American capitalism to, you know, fuck up the, the local economies and, and buying land and or like technically like foreigners aren't allowed weren't allowed to buy land in Haiti, but they were granted like, oh, you can lease this land, you can build your fucking banana plantation, whatever. Um, so <laughs> it's like, yes, I agree with you. But at the same time, it's like even winning their freedom, they could not escape the horrible economic effects of capitalism. And it's like, I think a lot of, you know, it's like, it, was it better? Was it better when we had these kind of native populations. I mean, I think it was obviously better before, before the, the waves of genocide happened because even Haiti, I believe had native people living there. Europeans killed them all, repopulated it with slaves. That in and of itself is extremely fucked up, <laughs> you know, native Americans, exact same thing. So it is, it's, it's tragic and it's horrible. So is there, is there extreme actions that can be taken today from these sort of extreme ideological standpoints that can help heal the wounds of colonialism as we as as it manifests in our power structures today probably only redistribution of assets and wealth based on reparations mm -hmm. because i mean the the sad yeah. part about the haitian revolution and you can see this in a revolution in Cuba as well. We have um, an underrepresented. I like, I like Cuba. I like I like Cuba. Your, I like that was yeah, nicely done. <laughs> Just wanted to shout that out. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm multicultural. Um, <laughs> you have you have a slave class or or an oppressed class, which is often um, the position of the majority of the partakers in these revolutions. Yeah. And the, the the truth is, they had no chance. Because they're undereducated, under uh, they, they have no operational basis by which to run a country, run it effectively, creating a vacuum of power. Or, like Cuba, you could align yourself with a larger national interest like Russia, um, which they did. And that's probably how they survived at all. And obviously, right. uh, Castro established himself as a dictator. Right. Um, because there is, no, there is no way to cooperate on the... You're, you're forced into globalism. Now that you've mm -hmm. been taken over, you're mm -hmm. forced now to cooperate, fight, and compete with the rest of the world. And they just never had a chance with their education, with their background. What were they going to do? Like, yeah. what yeah. chance did they have of creating a successful government with their assets, with their amount of education, with their background? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100%. I mean, you know, I, that is why I sometimes become a little discouraged when I see, you know, these people making these Facebook posts, like it's just because of capitalism. It's just because of, you know, this, this just horrible system we live in. Although I saw, I saw, I heard a really good quote. Maybe this can bring us towards some kind of a conclusion. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, 
I can't remember who it was by, but I, it was on one of the streamers I follow on Twitch who does like political commentary. It was like, be, be ruthless to systems, but be kind to people. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because the systems have, are, in, are here. We, we live in these systems. There's no escaping that whatsoever. And, you know, globalist economy, capital explo exploitative capitalism. I mean, that system is ingrained into our modern world. It's just, it's, it's the framework. It's all kind of been built around. But the people, not all the people who participate in this are happy with it. And I would even go as far to say not even all the people who benefit from it are happy with it. You know, you say whatever you want about Bill Gates, but he has tried to make the world a better place. He didn't have to do that. You know, he's not a perfect dude. He's definitely done some 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 fucked up shit as well. But I mean, I guess I would say that people can be both good and evil in different ways and that the systems in place um, can kind of, I don't know, prop up both sides of our nature to a certain extent, maybe. Um, so absolutely, I want to believe that systemic change is possible, but you have to also accept the fact that systems have a lot of um, resistance to change built into them and that we're always running up against that problem, except in the case of extreme revolutions. But as we've seen, extreme revolutions sometimes lead to worse consequences than the power they were overthrowing. I know that arguments get made a lot by conservatives, like, oh, look at the French Revolution, look at the Russian Revolution, look how, you know, look at how bad the aftermath was. And I wouldn't say that you have to assume all future revolutions will have a dark aftermath, but you have to at least consider that that's a possibility whenever you're proposing a revolutionary idea on either side, on either extreme of whatever ideology that you're fighting for. Yeah. Great point. I mean, obviously competency is king when it comes to anything in life. Um, and ideas from both positions or whatever two competing positions are not going to be sufficient um, because they are, um, they are basic in their nature. Uh, the way the people who fall on these two different sides of any position are kind of stupid um, and inflexible. And it takes it takes those people, I think, to inspire change. And obviously, from um, from a position of uh, from their position, um, argue or otherwise convince those moderates that this is something worth pursuing. Um, and it's up to the moderates in a lot of ways to do the research, accept findings to some degree, be critical and to help implement because they're much larger in size, those changes which they wish to see in the world. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree. I and mean, I think that it's, I think it it's, would be impossible to argue against the fact that you need extreme positions to form moderate ones. So by virtue of that, you know, just that basic logic, then, you know, there could not be a centrism of any type without extremes. And so it, it almost makes the point that I'm arguing for a little bit moot because it's like not everyone could be centrists. No system could exist where that's even possible. So, you know, I think that that's you just kind of have to accept that. But there is a place 
for moderates. There always will be a place for moderates, just as there's always a place for extreme it, extremism. The bands may be able to sort of shift the percentages of like this much extreme, this much moderate, where all these different things overlap, but there will always be a spectrum. I, I, I would say we could probably agree on that uncontroversial, uncontro uncontroversially. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting because like in, in our in-group, whatever, whatever that is socially or politically, I think it, I often get frustrated by extremists making my in-group look bad, but I think, yes, I think after doing a little bit of, of research, I, I'm pretty thankful because they, they do give credence on some level to m now my more moderate viewpoint, more yeah. likely to be widely adopted in comparison. Um, so we, we have to rely on those people to be a measuring stick for good ideas as well to say, hey, that's just crazy. But this implementation in comparison seems like a compromise willing to make. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I feel like I probably shared that same feeling where, yeah, I would see certain people on Facebook and be like, oh, man, like, come on, dude. Like just you saying that some Republican or, you know, even you know Twitter or whatever it is would just screenshot that. Be like, look how crazy the left is. Look at this person I found, you know, and it's. Of course, I can do the same thing for batshit crazy right wingers too. But you know, it's, yeah. it may not feel productive, but it it may be a just inevitable part of change and progress, no matter what. So once again, we've proved that one side is always right by reaching a compromise. I have a feeling this is going to be a trend in this podcast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's that's the joke. Or any uh, oh. any final remarks on. Or any conclusions that you wanna you wanna wrap think, this up with? I think I think all of what we just said was a really good conclusion, and I think mm. adding any more to it would just spin the wheel again and kind of send <laughs> us in another circle. I think that actually was a a pretty decent conclusion. Uh, if everyone can, you know, just just let us know who you think won the debate, or if you think it, it indeed was a tie and a compromise. Um, we appreciate all of our. Um, uh, five viewers, listeners, whatever you call them. Yeah. And let us know if you changed your mind as well. Like not just <laughs> if one of us made a better argument, but if any of you guys actually went question your own thoughts about this based on two stupid people talking on a podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. We love hearing from our listeners and we love hearing success stories of people whose minds were changed and learned <laughs> to think about the world in a new, better way. I'm Corey Campbell. And this is Thomas Warner. <laughs> Signing off. <laughs> <laughs>